Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Holly Kernan, Chief Content Officer at KQED, and I'm very excited to be here on stage with CNN law enforcement analyst Josh Campbell. Josh is a former FBI agent specializing in counterterrorism and intelligence. He was also special assistant to former FBI Director James Comey. Now he is an author, here's his book, and he's an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California and an analyst for CNN. Uh, during his time at the FBI, Josh investigated the 2008 Mumbai attacks, the suicide bombings in Indonesia, and he also served overseas with the CIA. He received four FBI Combat Theater Awards during that time. He left the FBI in 2018 after 13 years of service with the Bureau. And he wrote a viral New York Times op-ed, Why I Am Leaving the FBI, to explain his decision as necessary to sound the alarm about the danger of President Trump's political attacks on the Bureau. He is the author of the recently released book, Crossfire Hurricane, Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI. So we're very pleased to have him with us to discuss President Trump's attacks on the FBI, the latest news of this whistleblower complaint, the Mueller investigation, and the future of national security. So please join me in welcoming Josh Campbell. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is a great honor uh, to be back in one of my favorite cities. Um, and I'll just say at the outset, you notice I brought up my phones. We both did. Um, <laughs> I'm only one tweet away from having to rush out of here and go to work. So uh, we're monitoring the president's feed, and we'll see if he makes any news today. You can okay, come I'm over not to leaving, KQD and uh, get on yeah, CNN's air. It, there is literally to. breaking news happening as we speak. As we so. speak. Well, so I read this book in uh, two weekends, and it was such a strange thing to revisit these two-plus years of history um, and as I was finishing the book, these new revelations about this whistleblower complaint started coming out, and I just felt this surreal deja vu that everything was sort of happening all over. Um, so the Trump administration is trying to block this whistleblower account. Uh, we have today this unclassified memo of President Trump's conversation with the new president of Ukraine, so I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, but can you just... Talk us through how hard is it to make a whistleblower complaint through the proper channels if you're an intelligence officer, which this uh, whistleblower reportedly is. How does that work? How difficult is it? What kind of jeopardy is this man in? CNN just reported that we know now that it is a man. Mm -hmm. Explain this to us. We've got this rare moment where we have an expert who can help us through this yeah, almost incomprehensible moment. No, it is. Uh, and this is, you know, obviously something that's very troubling to anyone who served in the intelligence community and average citizens alike who maybe haven't. Um, what I can tell you about this person and not, not knowing the identity, interestingly enough, I don't want to know the identity. I don't want to know who this person is. I don't want this person to become famous. Um, that's unlikely to happen. It's unlikely to happen, right, for, for uh, unfortunate reasons uh, that I'll mention. Uh, but this is someone who was working inside the intelligence community, as reported, and saw or heard something that was so troubling that he decided to report it and availed him of the processes that are in place. And I can tell you, having been inside the FBI, uh, you know, which is one of the 17 agencies in the intelligence community, every single year I had to sign a form, a certification uh, attesting to the fact that if I saw any 
abuses of intelligence during the course of my work that it was not only my option to report it, but it was mandatory. You have to report these abuses. And the reason is, and I talk a lot about this in the book, we've been in a dark place in this country before where the intelligence agencies were able to do things that can now only be described as abuse. The gross violation of civil, civil liberties uh, back in the 1960s and the 1970s. You had people like J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time, uh, who served a touch too long, about 50 years, which is a long time to be, you know, in a job. Um, but throughout the course of that job, uh, you know, he was wiretapping people without authorization. And so in the wake of that, you saw these reforms come into play whenever this came to light. You had the Congress that not only legislated that an FBI director's term would be 10 years, Mostly that didn't happen with my former boss, Comey, which we'll talk about, but uh, it, w- it would be manda- mandatory that he couldn't serve beyond 10 years because they didn't want another J. Edgar Hoover. And they also we saw the introduction of the intelligence committees in the House and in the Senate that would now provide this robust oversight, because before during that time, the intelligence community could operate uh, strictly within the branch uh, the, uh, the executive branch of government without checks from outside and abroad. That all changed with those abuses. So we have these committees, the same, very same committees that are now trying to dislodge this whistleblower's report from the office of the director of national intelligence, because by law, it states, the law states that whistleblowers, if, if it reaches a certain level of severity, which the inspector general, the independent body inside the intelligence community, this uh, IG has said that this Appoint, warrants appointed reporting. Appointed by the president. Appointed by, by President Trump. Correct? Right. This yeah. isn't some angry Democrat, you know, as the Mueller team was described. Uh, this is someone the president appointed who says this is something that's so serious it has to get to where it needs to go. And so for the whistleblower, this person did exactly what we require them to do, every employee. Now, that's not to say that everything that gets reported by a whistleblower actually pans out to be actual abuse, but you don't want the whistleblower making that determination. You want them to, you know, if they, if they see something, say something, you know, so to speak, uh, and let the inspector general and let the Congress decide whether or not that this is actually troubling enough uh, to warrant additional action. But we're seeing that obstruction right now. And what is so concerning uh, is that it's been reported that this complaint didn't go from the office of the director of national intelligence to the Congress. It went through the Justice Department, which has raised a lot of eyebrows because under the current attorney general, we saw his behavior during the Mueller investigation um, and you know, seemingly running interference for Trump. That has cast this cloud over whether he is trying to prevent embarrassment for the president or you know, it, it raises additional questions. Well, and further, the memo I'm, I'm pointing to here is that it uh, – a readout of the conversation between President of Ukraine and President of the United States, and it references Bill Barr specifically numerous times, right. in which case one would assume he would have to recuse himself, right? One would assume. That's right. And, and the reason that's important is because he has been obviously – well, his Justice Department has been involved in this whistleblower complaint. Uh, we just learned just within a matter of hours ago, our, our colleagues reporting at CNN, uh, that the inspector general uh, actually referred to the Justice Department for potential prosecution based on some of this uh, questionable activity that they saw from the president. And the Justice Department declined. And this is only now coming to light. We didn't know about any of this before. And so, again, it casts this cloud over whether the Justice Department is actually independent. And the, I think the reason why this is important, and I talk about in the book, I I didn't know writing this book, looking back over the last three years of the Mueller investigation, the Clinton investigation, that we would then find ourselves here again in the same situation with a president of the United States 
on the phone with a foreign leader trying to get assistance in a U.S. election. But here we are, and what I argue in the book, uh, and, and I know, you know, I, I think we're going to discuss a little bit, but the independence of the FBI and the Justice Department has historically been sacrosanct, that these are agencies and institutions that can't be seen as political arms of any White House, Republican or Democrat, because what they do is different. Unlike any other agency in the U.S. government, law enforcement has the power to deny citizens their liberty. Think about it. You prosecute someone, they go to jail. You are denying them their liberty. And because that mission is so critical and so important and so unique, it's long been held that these agencies would be independent and outside of politics. But we're seeing this dangerous turn yet again, I would argue, uh, with this just this breaking news that we've seen today. Well, so I'm just going to read a tiny bit from this readout of that conversation um, that it is purported to be part of this whistleblower complaint. Um, and the president of the United States says, um, you know, we spend a lot of effort, a lot of time on the Ukraine. We give you a lot. It's not reciprocal. And I've got a favor to ask of you. Could you please investigate Biden, Hunter Biden, and this terrible thing that happened with this prosecutor who I heard was very good? What... How are you interpreting this conversation? How is this a normal conversation? Um, how often does something like this happen? Well, this is this is very abnormal. And, you know, there's been this debate, you know, people saying, well, do you take the president seriously or do you take him literally? Um, if you read the transcript of this conversation, as you just outlined, it's essentially the president saying, you know, we don't get enough from you. We do so much for you. And by the way, since I have you on the line, I have this favor I want to ask of you. Um, which in diplomacy, that's, that's normal. There's pressure that's applied to foreign governments. Uh, but what's different here is that, and it's unprecedented and, and potentially criminal, is the idea that the president, any president, would ask a foreign government to assist in investigating a political opponent. And that's, a, that's essentially what this is. Looking into Joe Biden, you know, his family, um, who obviously is, you know, a top-tier Democratic candidate, uh, which is the, the troubling aspect of this. And what is so fascinating, and I, I'm not sure how many of you have gotten to read this, uh, this memo yet that, that's come out, but I've been on the phone all day kind of working from afar, uh, reporting, you know, talking to my colleagues in, in media. And there's this question that's come out, why in the world would the White House release this rough transcript, knowing that it's so damning. And my answer to that is, look back at the Mueller report. You remember there was a period of time where we all questioned whether we would actually get to see it for ourselves. And there was intense public backlash. People wanted to see it for themselves. And I submitted at the time, I submit now, that had they kept the Mueller report secret, we would, we would see that untenable backlash that the White House just wouldn't be able to contend with. What are you trying to hide? And so what I think that they did here today with this transcript was very similar to the Mueller report, and that is choose the least worst option. We can't keep this secret. The House of Representatives has already announced that there's an impeachment inquiry underway. And so the least worst option is to release it and then spin it. And then that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that, you know, the, the, actually, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if you caught this, but the White House accidentally sent their talking points. You hear this? Two Democrats in the Congress this morning and then sent a recall notice on the email 
for all of you who have ever received a recall notice, the first thing you do is think, ooh, I'm going to oh, check this see out. That. Right. But, but in, in these talking points, we see them already trying to spin what's in here, uh, which, again, I, you know, I'm not a partisan or political person right or left, but I can certainly analyze actions. And this appears to be, again, another iteration of what we saw Mueller. Get it out there. You know, it's unfortunate it's out there. And then try to put the, our best foot forward. Well, so that's what I want to ask you about, like reliving this two-and-a-half-year history where things came out in these kind of drips and drops, um, and first it was denied, then it was acknowledged, but, you know, we were just talking about adoption, um, and the public had this information that was kind of coming out. It was either distorted or called a witch hunt, um, and really the impact was that it was minimized because it comes out in stages so that if you had gotten sort of the full Mueller report in, you know, May of, of 2017, for example, we probably would have viewed it differently. But we've become inured to, to this sort of level of both crazy and sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> It seems like something is changing right now. I mean, again, like reading your book at, at this time, having lived through it, but it's coming out and you're giving everybody the benefit of the doubt at first because you want to believe that your president and your Justice Department are telling you the truth. You sort of still want to believe in the rule of law. Um, this time, there's a lot more skepticism. We don't know if they're telling us the truth. If you can lie about a weather report, why would you tell me the truth about this? If you can lie about the Mueller report... And distort it to such a degree that, you know, I don't know what's true, but it feels like we're at a turning point. No, it certainly does. And, you know, the thing about this is that, you know, those of us who are interested in politics, you know, you study the administration and, and how they react to certain things. Um, the, the playbook is the same. You know, if you go back and look throughout the Mueller investigation, you look at the, you know, the Stormy Daniels thing involving these payments that were potentially campaign finance violations, um, all the allegations of, of illegality. Uh, and again, this isn't a, a political statement, but but the uh, the reaction is the same, and you can almost set your watch by it. It starts with, "I have no idea what you're talking about," whatever the allegation is. I don't know. The next is, "Well, I I I've heard about it, but there's nothing wrong with it." And then the next one is, "Well, yeah, I've heard about it. There's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it's this other person. You need to talk to that person." And then the last thing is, "Witch hunt." <laughs> right? And so that's the stage. You know, you're out, I'm a victim. You're out to get me. And we're seeing that now with the latest, you know, I have no, the president, this is so fascinating. Go back and look at his initial response to this call with the president of Ukraine. In the same setting, uh, and, and I've, I've watched this video many times now, he's asked by a reporter about, you know, what took place. And he starts off by saying, I have no idea what you're even talking about. What call? What are you even talking about? And then Less than 60 seconds later, he says, it was a beautiful call. Nothing went wrong. And so then the response is, so you do know what we're talking about. You just let that cat out of the bag. Uh, and then you kind of go back to the denial. But, but that's the pattern. And, you know, I think because, uh, you know, he's shifty in the sense that, you know, he's, he's obviously sparring and, and, you know, trying to throw pe people off balance, that it's just so exhausting. Um, but with this sense, it, it feels different in the sense with these latest revelations because you have something that you didn't have during the case of Robert Mueller. We all remember that the president... Uh, tried to bill Robert Mueller, a lifelong Republican uh, who served, uh, you know, in different administrations for different political parties, tried to bill him as a deep state angry Democrat, right? Someone whose sole mission in life was to take down Donald Trump, which is interesting because for, for those of us who have worked for Robert Mueller, 
I never heard him utter a political phrase, you know, in his life or, or any political inclination on anything. And so, but that was the playbook to try to destroy his credibility in order to try to destroy whatever it is that he might come up with. And then, you know, you had this <laughs> scandal inside the FBI, which I write about, where employees were texting with each other, uh, talking about their great animus towards Donald Trump, uh, which was a political gift to the Trump people, because then they used that to bludgeon the Mueller team. What's different here is that you don't have those same characteristics because of this whistleblower. He went through the proper channels. Like you can't call this person a deep state operative because if he was a deep state operative, he would have leaked this to the press. Uh, he wouldn't have gone through these proper procedures and proper channels. And so I think it's very hard for the president and his allies to try to defend against that by using you know, those same tactics. They're, they're trying, but it's not necessarily resonating. It worked perfectly with Robert Mueller, a lifelong Republican, and the idea that only somebody of your own political persuasion who gives you a loyalty oath can investigate you is problematic at best. But I'm going to push back a little on your characterization of of Robert Mueller. I feel like the other thing that may have worked is, you know, the media is so liberal. The deep state is so liberal. They're all Clintonists. Mueller is a Clintonist. Comey is a Clintonist. Turns out that in some ways, Robert Mueller bent over backwards so far to be fair to this president that he may not have done the right service to our country. It's a great point. And, and one, one criticism that I've had in, in the manner in which he, he ran the investigation uh, is the following. And, and I'll say real quickly, what I was saying since the beginning of his investigation, I was telling people that I knew who were Republicans, people who I knew uh, that were Democrats, and obviously on, on CNN, of, you know, on all the time discussing these, these matters. What I would say is – at the time, you need to manage your expectations because Robert Mueller is only going to go so far as the facts take him. Uh, and that may be good for you. That may be bad for you. But if you're looking at this person as your savior, as your hero, remember, he built up this kind of hero status. Uh, you're, you're begging to be disappointed down the road. The problem is, and this is my criticism of him, is I think he ran his investigation like a federal prosecutor and not like an FBI agent. Huh. And, and this is what I mean by that. Inside the FBI... And obviously he was, he was former F- FBI director and former prosecutor. Inside the FBI, your goal is to gather the facts. What happened? To ask hard questions, to gather information, to collect that, to paint a picture of what you think happened, and then hand it over to a prosecutor and say, does this fit the legal threshold to prosecute? But what Mueller did, because he's a former prosecutor, is he limited the scope of his investigation from the outset. Because there's this policy uh, inside the Justice Department that you cannot indict a sitting president, what he decided was I'm not even going to go there because I know that there's this policy in place. So what I would argue is if he didn't even think about that policy, didn't let that constrain him, followed the facts, you know, perhaps even include the president's financial records, like we don't know how far he went there, and then handed that over in his report to the Justice Department, they could be the ones to then say, well, okay, we're not going to be able to indict. But at least we would know the full scope of what he, you know, what he found. Um, I just feel that that, that was a, a the same missed opportunity as, uh, you know, obviously the, an understatement. But um, I think he could have gone a lot farther had he taken the approach of, of the investigator, not the prosecutor. Well, so there's this memo inside of the Justice Department that says you cannot indict a sitting president. It's just a memo. It's right. not a law. Um, nobody has passed it. And your thesis in in the book is that Mueller's hands were tied by this memo. And yes, I believe that that may have been the way that he looked at it, but I'm just not buying it. Sort of, you know, as 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 
as just an ordinary person out here in San Francisco, I, I just feel like he wasn't up to the moment in history, particularly in this in this case. Um, Miller submits his report just like he's asked to do to the DOJ. The DOJ summarizes it, releases that to the public. It is false. Mueller sees that that summary is absolutely misleading and false. What does he do? He writes a strongly worded letter, and everybody says, like, Mueller never does this. This is him going off the rails to Attorney General Bill Barr. Nobody sees this. I mean, he really needed to get up and that very day say, this is not what's in my report. No, it's a great criticism. And, you know, as people look back on his investigation, that's that's fair criticism. They're going to wonder, could he have done more? Um, I think that what he did in writing this letter and this basically the letter said, my report is being mischaracterized in public. And what he could have done is picked up the phone to call Attorney General Bill Barr. And then there would be no record. We would really never know about it. Mm. But he wrote this letter that was memorialized. And you have to remember, I mean, from you know, the reporting at that time, we did learn about it. That did get out there uh, through media reporting. And, so that, and I think that was the driver uh, to, see a, to see the Justice Department open up a little more on what the memo was and what it wasn't. Uh, but you're right in the sense that, you know, and I'm very critical of the attorney general in the book, because I think that what he did coming out and mischaracterizing the Mueller report at the beginning allowed this this narrative to bake into the national psyche. Right. All of us, the American people. You remember that? I don't know if you remember that day. I remember that day when he came out and said Mueller's found nothing. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking, wow, that is fascinating because that's not what I expected. And I think a lot of people you know, thought the same thing. But we, but we, th- we want had nothing, to believe, you wanted to believe our it. officials, especially at the Justice Department, are telling us the truth. Correct. And, and so that was kind of the default. Like, wow, that, okay, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I wouldn't say disappointed because as a journalist, I mean, I don't get disappointed by information. The information is the information. But I was surprised to then later, five weeks later, find out that that was all a sham, that we had been manipulated uh, by this initial char- mischaracterization, um, obviously is very troubling. And it's thrown Barr into this light that, you know, he's obviously opened himself up to criticism. And then he's doubled down on that. And this, and I take you inside the FBI in this book. In one particular area that's fascinating is you'll recall, uh, and not, not that long ago, that the attorney general, Bill Barr, has adopted the same lingo that the president has used as far as what the FBI did vis-a-vis his campaign, saying, and the attorney general using the same word, they spied on the Trump campaign, which I can tell you, having been an FBI agent, and I'll, and I'll preface this by saying this book criticizes the FBI in certain ways. I'm not a shill for the FBI. I go on TV all the time and talk about stuff that they screwed up. But inside the government, inside the FBI, the only time we would ever use the word spy or spying was when we were describing something that a foreign adversary was doing to us, the United States. But here you have the attorney general saying that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign. So if out of the gate, the person overseeing this review into what happening, what happened is already adopting the language of the president, then how can the, the bureau get a fair shake? Uh, and I think that's a lot of criticism that, we, that we've seen, and I think we'll continue to see that as it relates to whatever findings they come up with. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, your respect for the FBI and its motto, fidelity, bravery, and integrity, comes across so clearly in this book. Um, but I think most of us probably in this audience uh, don't really understand the institution. So can you just kind of describe the character of the FBI and why you feel this great reverence for it? No, I do. And, you know, it's uh, one, one of the hardest days was leaving the FBI, an, a- an agency that I, I revere. I, I mean, I still do. Um, it is... I just look back on on having the opportunity to work to work there. When you leave an organization or you you know you leave a company, 
it's not unusual to think, man, look what I did for this company. I did, you know, I put in all this hard work. I did all these great things. The FBI, it's the opposite. When you leave, and this isn't, I mean, this is the reality. I stopped to think, wow, look what all this organization did for me as a person, you know, these opportunities um, to, to, you know, do things in, in service to the American people. Um, and so it is different. And the people, it's, it's uh, the organization, for those of you who have an opportunity to meet someone in the FBI or, you know, know FBI agents or analysts or professional staff, I mean, they're, they're different. I mean, it's this orientation. It's people that get up every single day trying to protect the country, trying to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And again, they're not perfect. Uh, they're fallible. Again, I talk about it in the book, a lot of the, you know, the mistakes. Uh, but the FBI that I know, and this is why I wrote the book, this is why I'm, you know, I continue to speak out, is not the FBI that the president and his allies in Congress would have you believe that it is. That somehow it's filled with these deep state operatives, uh, <laughs> Democrats, which is fascinating because the organization skews conservative. Um, but this organization of deep staters who are trying to secretly, you know, conduct a coup on the president, essentially, is, is what they have you believe. Which basically, and just to, just to you know, boil this down... What that is saying to the men and women of the FBI is that they have violated their oath. If the president says that they corruptly tried to investigate him, what he's saying is that this great oath that they took, that they swore an allegiance to, not to a person, but to a document, to the Constitution, he's saying that they violated that, which I can't think of any greater way to cut to the core of an FBI agent or analyst than to say you violated your oath to the Constitution. But that is what he is saying. And so what I try to describe is a real character of this organization. As I mentioned, I go back and talk about some of the some of the abuses and things that they've done wrong because I think it is so important to to talk about that. I also think that oversight is a great thing. I remember being in the FBI and you know thinking, especially as I moved up and you know I worked in the director's office, thinking like, how meddlesome is Congress? I mean, they are asking about all this stuff constantly over and over, and then thinking, you know what, that is the way it's supposed to work because you don't. As an agency, you don't get to amass this great power without having someone look, looking over your shoulder. And you ask FBI employees, by the way, and that's the thing that, that, that you know, I would say many of them believe, uh, so much so that when you go through the FBI Academy um, at Quantico, one thing that you cont- they continually tell you is whatever you do in your investigations, you do it as though someday it's going to end up on the front page of the Washington Post <laughs> because you have an adversarial press out there, which is a good thing. Now that we work in an adversarial press, you know, it's a great thing. Um, but that's how they operate, knowing that gone are the days when you can just do things secretly and people aren't going to, you know, find out about it. Uh, and in fact, you know, and, and I'll, I could ramble on and on, but, you know, one thing that I really remember, uh, there was this scandal under Mueller uh, with the way that the FBI handled what they call national security letters, which was uh, basically essentially uh, similar to a subpoena where the FBI would go to a company and get records on, on some U.S. citizen as part of their investigations. But if it f- fell within the realm of national security, the FBI had greater latitude, and they could actually go to a company and demand secrecy of the company. I'm going to give you this national security letter. You have to give me these records. And by the way, you can't talk about what I just did. That was a power afforded to the FBI by Congress. During the course of conducting these investigations, the Congress and an inspector general inside DOJ found that the FBI had abused these powers, not uh, for malicious reasons. They weren't you know, going after people maliciously, but the record keeping was shoddy. There were all kinds of problems. And I remember after that, you know, being at FBI you know, training, they're saying, whatever you do, every national security letter you write, you picture Senator Patrick Leahy sitting on, uh, you know, uh, in Congress holding up your NSL 
and showing the American people how you may have abused your power. And so that sticks in the back of your mind. So the point in saying all of that is that these agencies know that they're being watched. They know that there are these oversight mechanisms. And I would submit that that makes them do their work in line with the policies that we would expect. One of our audience uh, members wants to know what's the current morale within the FBI, um, and are you having, or is the FBI having any recruitment problems? So it's a great question. So uh, and, and recruitment that, that's such a key indicator. Uh, recruitment numbers for FBI agents dipped sharply during the Mueller investigation. Fewer people signing up to become FBI agents. I think that's now starting to rebound a bit. They haven't put their finger on you know, you know why that is. Perhaps now with the bureau out of the news, at least as of now, you know this Ukraine thing might. Throw them back in the mix. Uh, but it showed that there was a problem with this campaign of attack against these agencies because the theory was that you know fewer people were signing up to be part of this organization because they saw it as controversial. You know, if I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with my life, why would I go to the FBI when I see them on the news all the time? The president saying that they're crooks, they're criminals, you know, why would I do that? And the reason why that's so important, and I write about this uh, in the book, is that has real impact on all of us from a public safety standpoint because the FBI will still have to fill their classes at, at Quantico with the numbers, with, with people. They'll still have to hire people to do these jobs. But what it means is that they're going to have to lower their standards in order to fill those classes because the revered FBI agent that you all maybe have envisioned you know, throughout the last uh, you know, couple decades, the professional, the, the, you know, the law person, um, you know, the, who's excellent in, in different fields and, you know, uh, and brings those skills to the table, if they have to lower those standards, then whoever they bring in may be there for two, you know, two decades in their career. And so will you see the same caliber of person, caliber of person uh, now that you saw then? Real consequences. Uh, and then lastly, on, on quickly on morale, mm. um, I talk to people inside. I make a point to talk to someone inside the FBI every single day. Hmm. And it's not just because I, you know, report on these institutions now, you know, as a journalist, but I also want them to know that, you know, they're not alone in this, in, in, in enduring what they're, what's been coming their way. And so having these conversations and the one theme that I've noticed is, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the person I'm talking to is a Republican or a Democrat, you know, or where they fall in the political spectrum. But the one theme is it started as frustration during the early days of the Mueller investigation, and it's built up to anger where people are, are really starting to get angry. Like, when will this stop, this mm. campaign of attack? And now we've, we, you know, we've seen the president say that he's already labeled this latest scandal uh, the Ukraine witch hunt, right? And so you have these agencies that are potentially now on the cusp of being thrown right back into the mix. Um, and, you know, obviously Mueller's case is over, but there are continuing spinoff cases. I think some 10 uh, redacted cases came out of the Mueller investigation into different tentacles of Trump world. Um, and so... What I suspect in looking at 2020, the Bureau will continue to be a foil. You know, the president's already mm -hmm. said that the FBI and, and Mueller's team robbed him of the first three years of his presidency. So you're going to see the same attacks, and Morales continue to take a hit for that reason. And why it's important, and I would ask you this, is think about if you went to work every single day, regardless of where you work, whether it's in government, private sector, if you went to work every single day and the CEO of your company constantly called you a crook— <laughs> That would start to grate on you um, over and over. And think about what's been happening over and over. The witch hunt. A witch hunt means these people are crooks, that they're violating their oath to go after me. That causes a lot of anger in these institutions. So speaking of the culture of the FBI, is it fair to characterize the FBI as Republican-leaning, conservative in their political beliefs, male, white? 
Certainly. Yeah, all those things. Um, and, you know, I say it's, it skews conservative. It's similar to the military. You know, it's a somewhat paramilitary organization. But one thing that's so fascinating is if you hear people talk about the FBI, and, and I've been guilty of this, and, I, and I've since course corrected, uh, this whole notion that people say FBI agents and employees, they check their politics at the door. Not true. They're not robots, right? So when you walk into your office and you think about any collegial you know, setting, you're going to talk to people. You're going to get to know them. Again, they're not robots. They don't sit there on a computer all day processing investigations. You're going to get to know people. Some of them, you know, their personal politics. Some of them, you don't. Some people just don't even decide to talk about it. Um, but, but what's important is that even people that you know have a political leaning either way, the one theme is that that does not impact your investigations. It does not impact your work. Not only is that known as a culture throughout the organization, so yeah, it skews conservative, but that's not as though each investigation is also impacted by a, a conservative you know, a bent. Um, and even if you don't believe that that's the case, there are oversight processes and checks and balances that ensure that politics don't impact people's work. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Well, let me ask you about that. You start your book with an anecdote about James Comey, and you go into the whole Comey affair and firing and his meetings with the president, um, and, and you talk about the investigation into Hillary Clinton. Um, Comey went out of his way to violate FBI protocols and speak publicly about that investigation and, and characterize Hillary Clinton's behavior. Um, it seems like he did that to some degree, and I might be totally wrong here, but because of the inherent conservatism inside of the FBI, because of the criticism of people, why aren't you going after this harder? Um, and because there were allegedly leaks to Rudy Giuliani at that time, so it was going to come out anyway. So it almost feels like Comey bent over backwards to be political to, to sort of assuage the conservatism within the ranks. So I think that, um, so if you look at the timeline, I think we risk blurring two separate things. So there's the, the press conference that he held where he decides that he's going to announce the FBI is recommending that Secretary Clinton not be prosecuted. And so, and I, I write about that at length in the book. I was, I was part of that process. Um, his view at that time was because the attorney general at the time, Loretta Lynch, uh, had met privately on an airplane with President Bill Clinton. So you had the nation's chief law enforcement officer meeting on a plane with the spouse of the most high-profile subject in the modern FBI history. His view was because Secre uh, because uh, Attorney General Lynch did not re then recuse herself from the investigation, she remained in the chain of command for that investigation, that if the FBI declined to prosecute or recommend prosecution, then it would be seen— and this is just perception yeah. that the FBI was in the tank for Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, and I have nothing against uh, Loretta Lynch. I think actually very highly of her. I've seen her interact with FBI employees in a way that, that most people haven't um, just a genuinely good person. But I also think that she made the wrong decision and not recusing herself. And so what Comey then decided was I'm going to step outside the bounds of the justice department and make this announcement rather than just sending a letter, a one, one sentence letter. We're not going to prosecute. 
Um, so that, I understand why he did what he did. Where I fault him, and I write about this in the book, and by the way, you know, I, he and I, st- I still talk to him. We mix it up in, you know, these robust conversations. I told him, you know, some of the things that I was going to write, and he said, well, well, what about this? What about that? And I said, that's great. You put that in your next book, but this is mine. <laughs> um, but one thing I fault him on was the, the, the language used to characterize Secretary Clinton's behavior because— you know, if you're not going to recommend prosecuting someone, uh, I think that it was unfair to her to then say, but here are all these terrible things that she did. Um, and there's real one real fascinating uh, chapter in here. Uh, I mean, I wrote it. I think it's fascinating. Hopefully you think it's fascinating. It's a really good yeah, book. Thank actually. you. Thank you. Yes, I, I... Um, but there's one fascinating dynamic, I should say, where I actually sat down with uh, Secretary Clinton's former campaign manager, um, uh, Robbie Mook. And had a discussion with Robbie because I was fascinated by how this dynamic would go down. So you, you have me, the person who worked for Comey, who was leading the investigation into his boss, who was the candidate. And I just wanted to hash it out and just uh, not hash any, you know, hash it out, but, but have a discussion to figure out what was it like from your vantage point to be investigated, to have your candidate investigated. And the one thing that he said, and this gets to kind of what you're saying about the leaks is, he said, you don't, you don't understand that you knew what was going on in the investigation. You knew what was happening. We had no idea. Yet we were constantly being asked to comment on leaks coming out of your organization and out of the, presumably the Justice Department or someone in the know. And so I think that's important to, to highlight and spotlight because it really shows you um, the unfairness that was at play. Because, I, you know, again, I'm in journalism now, but at that time, you know, these leaks were uh, potentially seen as malicious, right, that, that were getting out. And in fact, Comey ordered a leak investigation because of what you mentioned, information that got to Giuliani. I don't think that has been resolved yet. Um, and now how many years later, right? <laughs> you I mean, think I think it's going to be? I, it doesn't look good. But, um, but so his view was, okay, I'm going to find out how this information is getting out there. And so he, you know, he wanted to get to the bottom of that. So there's that, his decision, which people you know, will criticize him on um, and you know, they have their own opinions on. Fast forward to October 28th, which was the second thing, and I don't want to blur the two where he decides that he is going to reopen the investigation into Secretary Clinton because during the course of law enforcement investigating this guy, Anthony Weiner, uh, who was the you know, spouse of, of Secretary Clinton's aide, uh, they found a laptop with all of these Clinton emails on them. And so then the question was, are these relevant to the investigation? You'll recall that uh, Secretary's te- Secretary Clinton's team had decided unilaterally what they would hand over to the government and what they wouldn't, and then they deleted the rest of the emails. And so Comey and the FBI thought, well, maybe these are the emails that we weren't able to look at. So he orders the reopening of that case. I remember that day, and I write about it. We we were pulling out of the FBI garage uh, in, in uh, his armored SUV, and as we're coming out of the garage, we're headed for CIA, and he turns to me and he says, I am totally screwed. I said, well, why? He goes, because of this letter. He had just sent this letter to Congress advising them that they were reopening the investigation, which leaked in about two seconds. Um, so you have to remember, the FBI didn't announce that the investigation was reopening. They notified Congress. In his view, he said at the time, and again, I'm not defending him. He can defend himself. But his thinking was, I told Congress the case was closed. I also told Congress if there's anything that causes us to reopen it, I will let them know. So here I am letting them know. But because it happened so close to the election and there's long been this FBI policy against conducting any kind of investigative activity around an election uh, because of even the potential that it might uh, throw the results, uh, that's something that he opted to, to go against. And obviously he's faced great criticism for that. Um, and it is without question that, you know, till the end of time, people will debate 
whether he changed the course of history uh, by reopening this investigation into the candidate that then ultimately lost. Well, and clearly he was between a rock and a hard place in terms of knowing that there were these leaks that were coming out. Uh, but again, to just an observer, the asymmetry in the way that a counterintelligence investigation had been opened into the other candidate for president, um, alleging potential conspiracy to defraud the electorate. Uh, It's just hard to understand why you're talking about one case publicly and not the other. It's a great criticism. And that, and that is the, I mean, that is the criticism, right? How could you uh, announce one case while the other one was kept secret? I asked him for that in the book, and his response was, um, and I pressed him on it. I said, well, you know, don't you think you owed the American people an explanation? Here you had Secretary Clinton's case, which was very public. The Russia investigation, the public wouldn't know until after the president had been elected. And what he said, and you can, you know, buy it or not, um, but his view was that the Russia case was still in its infancy. It had started in July. And so, you know, and then I pressed him. I said, shouldn't the American people have gotten some no, you know, idea of what was at stake? And he pushed back and he said, you know, what would I have told him? We've just opened this investigation. It's a couple months old. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know who it impacts. And by the way, it's classified and you're not going to hear anything else from me again. (laughs) And so, you know, what kind of chaotic state that would be in. But that's not going to alleviate a lot of, you know, concerns from people that to this day wonder why they were treated, you know, seemingly different ways. So differently. And I guess I'm still positing, is it because of the conservative bias in that organization. No, I'll, I'll just leave that there. No, no. Well, but just to answer that, I, I, <laughs> um, I, I don't think this, I don't think the Russia investigation was for that reason. In fact, I'm highly confident that the Bureau didn't decide not to announce the Trump investigation because the Bureau is, is mostly conservative. That doesn't square. Uh, there is fair criticism with, did Comey think that because everyone thought Clinton would be elected right. that, you know, it doesn't matter. Let me just, you know, do this. Um, which obviously, you know, that didn't turn out to be the case, but but that's something that would be criticized. And the one thing that, that just button that up, I mean, I think people take away what I tried to explain is, uh, and I actually talked to one of Secretary Clinton's other aides, um, who's, who's actually a friend of mine now. And what he said hey, after reading the book, and, you know, we've had this conversation, is he says, I'm so angry with you, like talking mm-hmm. about me. He goes, <laughs> It's your fault, Josh. It's my fault. No, he says, because I really, really want to hate James Comey. And this is a guy that worked for Clinton who would have been in, you know, some high power government job. And he said, but hearing you talk about him makes me so angry because I realized that he's actually a good person. Clearly. That just made decisions that not everyone agreed with. And that is, I hope, the theme that you see throughout the book. I got the opportunity to see up close someone uh, who was perhaps the best leader and had the best leadership qualities that I've ever seen in government. Uh, someone who was so maniacal about leadership. Uh, in fact, I got my job working for him. Uh, because we had this random encounter when I was at FBI headquarters, and he asked for my feedback on something, and, and I kind of blasted him on something. I gave him really critical feedback. Um, I only had a week left in my FBI uh, assignment, so I was going back to the field, and I thought, <laughs> what are they going to do, send me to the field? Um, but nevertheless, I get a call from him a week later saying, I want you to come work for me and fix all that stuff that you said was screwed up. And so he uh, – th- those were his words – and so he surrounded himself with people who would constantly give him this tough feedback. Which, and, and I think it's important to say that because I separate Comey the person from Comey the actions. People can debate his actions. He can defend himself. But Comey the person, I mean, I will defend his qualities as a person because I know that he's a really good person. Um, and, and the last thing on him, he gets – this is a criticism I've seen a lot. People say, well, he's too sanctimonious or he's too pious. or you know. And I respond to that with we live in an era where – 
our leaders lie to us with reckless abandon, right? Every single day, lies, lies, lies. I think the Washington Post had accounted 12,000 lies so far from the president since he's been in office. And so that being the case, if your best, the greatest criticism of Comey is that he's too pious. (laughs) And maybe a little piety isn't a bad thing, right? In in the main. And, you know, Sarah Sanders, who, who, uh, she doesn't come out that well in this book. Um, It's not personal. It's looking at her actions and, you know, her admittedly lying to the American people about the FBI. Um, You know, she called Comey multiple times a leaker and a liar. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I go back and look at Someone show me, point me to an er- an, uh, a time when Comey lied. I can't find it. In fact, the reason we know that he leaked his memos, which is fair criticism, I, I criticize him for the way he handled his memos, but the reason that we know he did it is because he was asked the question sitting before Congress, and he said, yeah, I gave it to a friend who gave it to the New York Times. And so even his worst actions, he didn't lie about, which, again, I, I, I point that out because when you compare that to the current state of Washington— I mean, there aren't a lot of Jim Comey's there. You write about uh, James Comey's last day as director of the FBI. You were with him right. uh, when he was pretty unceremoniously fired. Uh, he saw it advertised on CNN. On he's CNN. Saying, well, yeah. he's in the middle of giving a talk to the L.A. Bureau. Um, what was that day like? The day was, uh, you know, it's. I, I wish I could say... The moment he was fired, I suddenly launched into this internal monologue philosophically about the state of the country and, you know, future of democracy. It wasn't any of that. It was, it was chaos. Um, so we started the day in Washington. We went down to Florida. Comey was someone that he constantly wanted to be outside of Washington and visiting the field, the field offices, um, because that's where the investigators are doing most of the investigations. It's a deployed force. So we were constantly on the go. Uh, we came here to San Francisco a couple times as well um, to, you know, to visit the troops. But so we started that day. We went down to Florida and then on to Los Angeles. And his uh, goal that day was actually to attend a diversity recruitment event mm. for the FBI because he was so concerned that the FBI, the numbers of, F- of FBI agents, I think it was like 80 percent white, the number of F- FBI agents. And so we saw this, you know, potential fall off a cliff when, you know, this agency is going to turn into just this white organization. And so we wanted to go out and meet with groups of highly qualified people of color and minorities and pitch them himself on why they should join the FBI and think about a career in law enforcement. And so this was one of those days, one of those events that we were set up in in, uh, West Hollywood in California. And so because we got there early, he asked if we can go by the field office because he wanted to, again, visit the troops. So we're making laps around the building. He's stopping at people's desks and asking them about their cases and talking with them. And we go in the building's operations center, which is about the size of this room, and there are about the same number of people uh, that were in there. And so he's, he's standing, talking uh, to the troops, uh, updating them, you know, fielding questions from them. And by this point, as his special assistant, I had perfected the art of listening to him out of one ear mm-hmm. and, and being on my phone, right, kind of preparing for the next thing, the next meeting, the next, you know, whatever. And so I'm on my phone, and suddenly the room turns to silence, and it snaps me out of my reading, and I look over at Comey, and he's looking at me, and he's nodding to the back of the room. And there are two televisions in the back of the room. One of them is tuned to Fox News. And the banner reads, Comey resigns. And he's looking at me, like, and he's thinking, uh, later he told me, you know, presumably I would know if I resigned. <laughs> you would think. So he's confused, and I'm confused. And he actually thinks, uh, he thought at the time, that the FBI office was playing a trick on him, that some, you know, whiz kid, you know, a tech agent had doctored the screen just to play with him. And he actually looks in the back and points and says, that's pretty funny. 
And then about 15 seconds later, the uh, TV next to it that was tuned to CNN, uh, up comes my my now colleague, Jeff Zeleny, uh, at the White House and reports officially that the FBI director has been fired. And so Comey learned that he was relieved of his duties, not from, you know, a an apprentice type setting where the president's sitting across from a table and says, you're fired. He learns he was fired from CNN and it gets worse. So the method that this went down was there was the FBI, uh, excuse me, the president's personal bodyguard who drove to FBI headquarters and walks in and, and drops off a letter at the escort desk at the visitor center telling Comey that he'd been fired not realizing he's not even in the same time zone. He's, you know, across the country in Los Angeles. And so he learns about it from the press. And, and so Comey continues to address the crowd. He didn't want to just rush off the stage. And so I step out and call back to Washington. Uh, and, and I still remember that first surreal call. I connected with one of the senior leaders at the FBI. And I said, you know, I can't believe this. He said, well, what, what's going on? And I said, I, this is incredible. I cannot believe this. And he, he says, stop. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, well, we just learned on CNN that the FBI director was fired and he was on his way home and he thought, oh my God. So he turns around and comes back. Um, and then, and I, and I, I'll kind of give you the Reader's Digest version. You can read about that, that full experience of the day because it was so chaotic. I, I write about it in the book. Uh, but what was so fascinating at that moment, and I pull Comey aside and we're just having kind of a one-on-one discussion. Uh, at that time, there were only a few people in the country that knew about Comey's highly questionable interactions with the president. The loyalty dinner, quote unquote, where Comey had sat across from Donald Trump and the president demanded loyalty of the FBI director. And of course, you know, it was something that Comey wouldn't do. Secondly, there were only a few of us that knew that Comey had been asked by the president in the Oval Office to drop the criminal investigation into Michael Flynn, the national security advisor. To let this thing with Flynn. To let this thing go. He's a good guy, is what the president said. And then... On a number of occasions after that, the president had asked Comey to come out and publicly say that Trump was not a subject of this investigation. And it's something that Comey refused to do because having learned from the Clinton case, he thought, if I have to correct the record today, you might not be under investigation. But tomorrow there might be some piece of information that you know leads us to you. And so because of all those things, the president, it was this boil. And obviously, the, you know, to relieve this great pressure in his words, he terminated the person that was running an investigation into his campaign. But that day, we knew that the public didn't. The reason that the president, that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who I'm very critical of in this book, the reason they gave for firing James Comey, the reason they told the American people was because James Comey was too mean to Hillary Clinton. And that bothered President Trump so much. That Comey was too mean to Clinton that he had to go, which, of course, was a sham. And then we would learn later on the real reasons. The president would admit it himself. This Russia thing was on my mind. Um, and so that was troubling. But the, the thing is, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll leave this for the book you can read, is that that then suddenly caused people inside the FBI to question the independence of the Justice Department, which is some a, a place that I can't remember us being. It's certainly not in modern you know, U.S. history, where the deputy attorney general was running interference for the president who they know they knew at the time had had these questionable interactions. So it was a chaotic time for the FBI. So audience question uh, directly related to that. Do you think Rod Rosenstein purposely appointed Mueller because he knew he would strictly stick to the DOJ policy of not indicting a sitting president? That's a great question. I haven't thought about that. Um, I did, I did talk to one person for the book uh, who was a former senior DOJ person and asked that same question. Why Mueller? And what this person said, this person knows all the people in, this, in, in that world, uh, 
um, they said that basically there was no one else that Rosenstein could have picked to somehow salvage his reputation, which is would not, which had then uh, been shattered once it came to light that he was now seemingly running interference for, for Trump and firing Comey. And so think about it. The only person who had the chops within the Justice Department, within the FBI, certainly in Washington, I could tell you, know, tell you having been there working for Mueller, I mean, he was widely revered across the political aisle. I think that that's why he chose Mueller to, you know, if not to rehabilitate his reputation, at least bring it back up to some some level. Um, he would face great ire, obviously, from the president for doing that. The president, you know, as you read in the Mueller investigation, used um, language that's not appropriate for polite company once he learned that a special counsel had been um, uh, appointed. And so Rosenstein obviously was on the receiving end of, of a lot of attack there. But the thing is about Rosenstein, and this is why I, I kind of walk you through my view of him. And I, I interviewed dozens of people for this book because I didn't want the book to be one, uh, you know, the, the reflections of one person who lived this experience. I wanted you to get the snapshot. And the theme that I saw throughout about Rosenstein for people in the FBI and DOJ was this was someone who was seemingly uh, almost, almost kind of like a chameleon, that depending on who he was with on any given day, that's the person – uh, who who had his attention and his loyalty, hmm. um, and uh, and I can tell you, you know, just very quickly, had my own experience with Rod Rosenstein uh, that I write about. When I left the FBI to come to uh, to go to CNN, I get a call from a number that I didn't recognize, and I called it back, and he says, "Josh, this is Rod Rosenstein." And I thought this is bizarre. Um, I met him once. I'd met him one at one time. Uh, he didn't know me from Adam, but he starts by saying. You cannot leave the FBI. We need you. You are a fantastic FBI agent. This organization cannot lose you. And I'm listening, uh, you know, thinking hmm. as a trained investigator, like you can sense the the nonsense, right? Your nonsense detector, if that's a nice way to say it. Um, it was it was peaking off the charts. And, you know, I was sitting there wondering, and then it clicked. Like I'm going to this public platform with this new job in media. So this is after you had written your op-ed. This is right the day the day of the op-ed. Okay. So as as we're, and you had to like submit that to the to the FBI for yeah, oh, and the okay. week week before. Um, but but it, it finally dawned on me that this was someone who was so worried that I would potentially blast him that this was preservation of reputation. You know, we cannot lose you. I still remember it and saying that, which is just was icky. Um, and so what I told him, I said, "Sir, I said I appreciate the kind words. I said, but you know." There is frustration inside this organization. It is crickets over there from you all. We're being blasted. We're, and I told him this. We're being called crooks, and you all aren't speaking out. Hmm. And his response to that, which was telling of – and you know, my, my, what I write about him, it's not personal. It's just the reflection of, of his actions. He doesn't respond by saying, you're right. These attacks are wrong. He responded by – and I kid you not. He says, Josh – the president and, you know, Devin Nunes in Congress, who was someone who I was very critical of, Nunes is finished attacking the FBI. He said he's now moved on to attack the State Department. We're in the clear. <laughs> Kid you not. And so my view was that that's your leadership style <laughs> that, hey, we're going to be fine. He's now blasting someone else. And so I responded. I said, no. I said, you know, I'm going to do what you all should be doing, and that is to speak out. And that's not to say that these organizations are perfect. as I, You've heard me say that a million times. But to help the public understand when they're being manipulated. Um, so, that, so that was my experience with him, uh, with, with Rosenstein. And the theme that I heard in talking to the people about this book is that the, time, the few times that he did speak out, because we know that he was squarely in the crosshairs of President Trump mm-hmm. later on. 
if you go back and look at the record, the time that the, the times he would speak out, it was not when the FBI or the DOJ was attacked. It was when he was personally attacked. And so I submit, and I write about this in the book, that you know my view of leadership, and I think you know folks inside the FBI and agency where leadership and, and its culture is you know to build build great leaders, is that sometimes you have to be willing to lose your job in order to do your job. And I don't put him in the category of people that was willing to step up, put yourself out there to say, look, these attacks have to stop because they're serious and they'll have, they'll have real consequences. So speaking of character and fealty to principles as opposed to a person, in Crossfire Hurricane, you write that one aspect of law enforcement in this nation, which you mentioned earlier, that separates us from authoritarian regimes has been the norms that politicians do not interfere in the work of the FBI, and I would add, or the DOJ. Um, but I think the biggest fear with this level of sort of mendacity and the appearance of corruption um, and and sort of uh, the media response to this, well, he said this, she said this, I don't know what's happening. Um, and then our public attention span, like we're just from here to there. It's like we're on the verge of losing the very things that make this democracy work and adherence to the rule of law, uh, constitutional separation of powers, the, the you know, Bill of Rights, all of these things that have made this experiment, imperfect as it is in democracy, work for over 200 years. What are you worried about? What I'm worried about is is public safety and and the long term consequences. And and this is this is why I do what I do every single day. Um, I write about it in the book. I cite there, there's a really good book. Um, I know when you're selling a book, you're not supposed to recommend people go buy another book, but go buy the book. <laughs> uh, it's called How Democracies Die. Mm-hmm. It's by these two Harvard professors. This is a seminal work where they look at authoritarian regimes around the world uh, and how authoritarians work. And the one theme is that those who are authoritarians, a key aspect of their playbook is to try to bring to heel the powers of law enforcement in a country, to get them on their side, to get them to do their bidding. Because if you can do that, you can do anything. And so that's the point that I, that I point out, that these tactics that we see that are at play today to bring the FBI to heel, uh, to destroy the credibility of this institution, and I would say the larger intelligence community um, you know, you go back and look at the president saying that the intelligence community spied on him. They put a spy inside Trump Tower at the direction of President Obama. Um, you know, all that to try to destroy the credibility of these organizations so that they're no longer effective. And then now put your own people in power in the Justice Department who are doing your will. That is who are serious. loyalists. Who are loyalists, correct. When, when historically these institutions, as you say, have, have been loyalists. Loyalists, loyalist, yeah. Um, but historically, they've been independent for that reason that we don't want to become an authoritarian regime. But that's what's at stake. So that's the macro level. Um, one thing, you know, kind of on the macro, micro level for all of us, which impacts all of us, I argue that if the FBI is seen as a corrupt institution, if the president is successful and his allies in having the public believe that these institutions are, are corrupt because they happen to investigate him, all of us will suffer because – and this is just, you know, walk, walk – through this with me. When an FBI agent knocks on someone's door and needs help conducting an investigation or is trying to recruit an informant to go places that they can't go, I can tell you I've been an FBI agent trying to recruit sources to go into terrorist networks. That relationship is one of trust, that that person knows that they're going to be treated uh, you know, in the right way. If people see on the news or see the, pub- the president saying, over and over and over, deep state, witch hunt, deep state, witch hunt, corrupt criminals, you know, they're out to get me. If any of those people pause for a second to think, you know what, 
this is that same institution that I heard was very controversial. You know, they're maybe doing these bad things. I don't think I want to be any part of that. I, I don't want to help them. That impacts public safety. When an FBI agent rises in a courtroom to testify and says something, they have to be believed. That jury that's sitting there and that judge has to believe without a doubt that this person works for an agency that is incorruptible, that, that, that is one where ethics and values mean something. Hmm. And if they doubt for a second that what the person is saying tr- is true, because, again, what they've seen on TV or what they've heard from the president, that will hurt criminal cases and criminal investigations. That's the long-term consequence for public safety. So here's another audience question. Why hasn't anyone invoked the public trust doctrine? Our constitutional law has always included law saying some things are not meant to be for sale and are not private property. It's, it's a great question. I mean, that gets very, obviously, legalistic and people in power uh, that can actually you know, have sway over these kind of things. We're not seeing that inside, obviously, the executive branch. Um, but it goes back, and this is going to, I don't you know, want to insult your intelligence with this response that we've seen over and over, but this thing that you hear that elections matter. Um, you, know, you look at who's in power. The, the Democrats have one House of Congress. Uh, you know, obviously, the Republicans have the Senate. And so I don't think that there's a will or even those who could do anything from a legalistic standpoint are able to do that. That may change now with with impeachment, you know, possibly on the table. Um, And by the way, you know, I don't want to anger you. Like, I'm not someone who's out there advocating either way. It's not my job as a journalist to say we should impeach him. We shouldn't. That's up to the people and, you know, their their representatives to decide. Um, But I don't see any any other mechanism. you know, what you mentioned with the criminal law, I don't see that as a mechanism because we've already seen the DOJ say that a president you know, can't be indicted. And so the only you know, two ways, if, if your goal is to, if you're so alarmed by what's taking place, will be impeachment or you know, you, the, the ballot box. Uh, I think that will be the only, uh, reasonable, reasonably speaking, that will be the only way that there's change. Your book is Crossfire Hurricane, which is the, the uh, FBI's code name for the counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign's potential ties uh, to Russian interference in the 2016 election. Did that end with the Mueller report? Like, what's the status of Crossfire Hurricane? It's a great question. So Mueller closed the books two weeks ago, or two months ago, rather. As I mentioned, there were spinoff cases uh, that came out of that that are still uh, secret. Uh, but the one thing that you know, throughout, which hopefully the public has some great, you know, comfort or confidence as they see all the madness play out, is that the FBI's counterintelligence mission didn't stop the day Mueller closed the books on his investigation. Hmm. Uh, We know that there are aspects of the case to continue. The Roger Stone case, for example, is currently ongoing. Was he working with WikiLeaks and the Russians? Huge counterintelligence aspect there. Um, But the FBI's counterintelligence mission as it relates to Russia continues. And especially looking at 2020 and election security, and we know that the Russians are going to come back. Um, no, the FBI's targeting of Russia and the Russian threat continues. The question is, and this is you know, something we might not know, if there are aspects of the Russia investigation related to Trump that are still underway, mm. and no, no FBI investigation has a timeline, right? You don't know at the outset, okay, we need to finish this by X date or Y date. Will we know about that before the election? Can't answer that. Um, we're doing our best as reporters to try to get to the bottom of that, to try to figure out if there is a there there. Um, but that is currently the, the, the process that's, that's underway. And what I also fear, and you know, not to just have all, all bad news, but you know, some bad news, is that if the current attorney general is running interference for the president, we may never know that if nothing comes to fruition. If it remains a strictly national security investigation that they don't decide to prosecute, that may never become public. 
Well, so what are the lessons? You know, you did this deep analysis, this kind of retrospective on what happened with the 2016 election and and, and all of that after focused on the FBI and, and the attacks on the FBI. What do you think are the lessons for all of us looking toward the 2020 election, looking toward the future of this democracy? So so bad and good. I'll start with the battle and with the good. So um, as I mentioned, you know, the president has already started to run as the victim of the deep state. He's mentioned that the FBI robbed him as of the first three years of his presidency. I talk to people inside the FBI and DOJ all the time. And what I tell them is that if you think the last three years was bad, if they were bad, you know, as it related to the president attacking you, buckle up because the next year is going to be insufferable. I mean, it, it is going to be ugly because think about it. You know, there have been some legal analysts who have opined that if the president doesn't get reelected and with the statute of limitations on, you know, certain certain investigations, he might be prosecuted after he leaves office. If he gets reelected, then he may be able to outlive some of these statutes of limitations on some of some of the allegations here uh, here uh, in New York, you know, as it relates to corruption, potential corruption. And so I say that to say his potential freedom might be on the line. And so he's going to do whatever it takes, in my view, to get reelected. He has already said, this isn't a political comment. He has said, sitting in the Oval Office with George Stephanopoulos from ABC, he was asked the question, would you accept help from a foreign government? This is like this year, not 2016. He said, George asked him, would you accept help or would you call the FBI? Do you remember his response? Yeah. I think you do both. I think you accept it and then maybe report it. Which he's telling us what his plan is, Right. Which opens up to any foreign government out there, if your goal is to try to help in the election, he is signaling that, oh, you know, I want the help. Well, and with today's reports, he's not just signaling, he's asking. He's, he's asking, and he's acting on it. And so, so, so that, that's obviously very troubling going in. The fact that we may be seeing the same tactics and techniques that were used in 2016 applying now to 2020, but the goal to try to, you know, convince the American people that, that they should reelect him is, will be to say, I've been the victim of this out-of-control deep state. And in order for that to be effective, you have to continue to undermine these agencies uh, because that's how you change public opinion. The, now, just to end quickly with, with the positive, um, it's conversations like this. No, it really is. I mean, it's people who, who know these organizations, or if you don't know about them, you know, learning about them. That's the whole p- purpose of this book is to try to let the American people know that it is okay to speak out. It's okay to say, look, you know, when I hear them, the president blasting the FBI, that's not just some agency that's being impacted. That's all of us for the reasons that I've said. It's also important to say— Maybe also say that when the media is attacked? When the media—no, you're right. In fact, my mom asked me, she said, you work for two places that the president continues to attack. Yeah, what, what's your next— You work at CNN and you worked at the FBI. You know, is it you? Um, <laughs> But you're right. The, these institutions, critical institutions, which, by the way, that book I mentioned, the authoritarian, you know, how, how democracies die, also talk about the press, a independent, robust entity that can suss out corruption in the midst of, of, of government uh, officials. Um, so it takes continuing to defend these institutions from political attacks, all of us to have this conversation with people that we know. And when we hear or see or you know, read on Twitter or wherever uh, the president blasting someone to not be afraid to speak up and say, we know that that's nonsense. That's not to say you endorse what the FBI does. I don't, as I mentioned over and over, I don't. We hold them accountable when they stray. Uh, but we're all impacted when we allow this to go and just wash over us without speaking up and saying something. And the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with on that, that note is that, you know, one thing that I tried to do with this book is, again, kind of bring you inside the FBI and hear from the rank and file. 
And there was one theme that I've heard from FBI agents and analysts and professional staff when I when I asked them about what this whole campaign of attack has meant for them, has done for them. And there's a theme, and one person summed it up really, really well. He said, you know, the thing that really angers me and frustrates me is when I'm out with friends or I'm out with my family, and the question that I continue to get asked is, what happened to the FBI? Hmm. And his response is, Washington politics happened to the FBI. This is still the FBI that you remember, right, for the last couple decades. Uh, but politics has intersected with the Bureau in a way that we haven't seen. And so my point is there are real consequences. This is impacting real people who still get up every day to protect this country. And I think all of us have to be willing to speak out and say when things are not true and to help you know, discern fact from just this political noise. Democracy, use it or lose it. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so you wanted to also put in one other plug. Yes. So, uh, so I learned about this fund that the Agents Association runs where they uh, will take care of the families of fallen agents and send their kids to college. It's the FBI Agents Association Memorial Fund. Half of my proceeds go to this fund, uh, but you can go online, learn about it and donate and support. Uh, I can't think of a better cause. So our thanks to Josh Campbell, who is CNN law enforcement analyst and author of the new book, Crossfire Hurricane, Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Holly Kernan, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much.